This message was presented at the GYC 2010 No Turning Back Conference in Baltimore, Maryland. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org. Now, the title of my sermon, or my talk, is, you know, Why Do I Believe in God? And I admit that's kind of a strange topic, you'd think, for someone from, oh my goodness, I got that racket over there. I'm going to have to stand over here because that's very distracting. I can hear him right through the wall. Uh, I got that blasting in my eyes. <laughs> oh, all right. I'm a writer and I'm an editor. It's preaching for me is like pulling teeth. But, but now let's start again. The title of my sermon is Why Do I Believe in God? And you'd think that would be kind of a strange topic coming for someone who's been an Adventist for 30 years and Next year, I'll be at the GC 28 years, which will be literally half my life I'll have been there. And yet at the same time, maybe it's not so strange because maybe once in a while it's good to take a look at the foundation principles at the core of what you believe and why you believe it and make any adjustments along the way if you need to change. And I suppose in one sense, too, I put this talk together as kind of a defense against spiritual or even intellectual complacency. We don't want to take our beliefs for granted. We don't want to take our faith for granted. And we don't want to take our relationship with God for granted as well. We need to think through what we believe. Is that going up and down? That's going up and down. We need to think through what we believe, not for only our own good, but then maybe to fulfill the admonition we read in Peter, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to everyone that asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. And that's what I want to do with this talk, if nothing else, is just simply help give an answer for the hope that is in us. Now, the title isn't, Why Do I Believe in Jesus? Or Why Do I Believe in the Second Coming? No, I want to even get more basic than that. Those elements really are what you need faith for, a lot of faith for, for, for that. Uh, you need, I should say, you need revelation for. And though I'm not denying that you don't need faith to believe in God, I'm arguing that there are very powerful and logical reasons for faith in God. In fact, I would argue and argue even strenuously, which I'm going to try to do here, that logic and reason is by far, by far more on the side of those who believe in God than it is for those who don't. I believe the logic and reason works much stronger in our direction for belief in God. And, uh, and that's what I want to talk about, are some of those basic reasons for this belief. And I want to start with the story. I don't, I'm not ha I don't happen to be a very big, great C.S. Lewis fan. I mean, when Lewis is good, he's good. And I do think screw tape letters is absolutely one of the most, for a, that's not, quote, inspired as we understand inspiration. That is a powerful, powerful book. If you've never read Screwtape Letters, 
you ought to read the screw I mean, I get the goosebumps sometimes when I just think of that book and how powerful that book is. But generally, I'm not a big C.S. Lewis fan. He has some wacky stuff. I've never read any of the outside of mere Christianity and screw tape letters, a little things here and there I've read. But if there is, there is a good book called Surprise by Joy, which tells his own conversion experience. And I remember in this book, he talked about the fact that he was uh, teaching at Oxford. And uh, he talked about they were probably, I can't remember all the details, but they were probably, I think, sitting in the teacher's lounge. And uh, this is when he was still an agnostic or an atheist. And he talked about a friend of his. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, I don't have any slides or anything. So, yeah, good. Thank you. Very good. Yeah. I like to wander a little. Anyway, he was talking to this guy, and he called him the hard-boilest of all the atheists I ever knew. The cynics of cynics, the toughest of toughs when it came to faith. So obviously we're dealing with a hard-nosed atheist. I mean, you got a lot of them coming out of England these days. But anyway, they're sitting in the teacher's lounge, and the fellow says to him something like this. Well, you know, CS old chap, there really is a lot of powerful evidence for the historicity of the Gospels. And then the guy just dropped the subject. And I mean, and C.S. Lewis was floored. It was almost as if the guy said to him, well, you know, C.S. old chap, I was sitting last night eating and a flying saucer came down in my backyard and scooped up my dog Rover and took him away. Uh, Pass the salt. You know, just dropped the subject. Well, C.S. Lewis was floored because C.S. Lewis, he understood the implications of what that man was saying. I mean, if the Gospels were historically accurate, that is what they say really happened, then miracles occurred because the Gospels are filled with miracles, particularly the resurrection of Jesus. And if you had all these miracles, if you had these supernatural things occurring, then his own atheistic, materialistic worldview, he knew, had to be wrong. I mean, if you have a worldview which says divine miracles, supernatural miracles cannot occur, and yet they do occur, you know, then what happens to your worldview that says they can't occur? Okay, and this is what he faced with. This is what he was faced with. Now, I'm using this account not as an introduction to an apologetic on the Gospels, but as an account, as an introduction to what has represented from antiquity Basically, two overarching worldviews, two grand overarching metaphysics, if you want to. That might not be the best word, because I think one of them would deny, deny that. But first, there's the materialistic, atheistic worldview, which goes back as far back to ancient Greece. Hey, atheism and all this stuff, it didn't start with Richard Dawkins and the new, that's why they call them the new atheists. You could find this way back in ancient Greece, right up through today, where it's most loudly proclaimed by what they call the new atheists. No God, no creator were purely chance creations of what some ancient Greek philosopher 400 years, 300 years before Christ called the atoms, atoms and the void. Okay, that's all we are, atoms and the void. Okay, you've got that one view, the atheistic secular worldview, 
which is somewhat dominant in many of the academies today in secular America. And then you've got the second overarching view, you know, belief in some type of supernatural being or beings, you know, from Zoroaster's Ahura Mazda to Voltaire's deism. Voltaire was not an atheist. He was a deist. Voltaire once said every watch has to have a watchmaker. So you've got, you know, anything from Zoroastrianism to, to, to Voltaire's deism up through Calvinistic predestination and on and on and on and everything in between as well. Now, either worldview, this is important, Lewis knew negated the other. I mean, if the atheistic worldview was true, then the other worldview was false. If the other worldview was true, then the atheistic worldview was false. I mean, there was no synthesis here. Either there was a God or there isn't a God, or there supernatural being or beings or not. I mean, there's just no middle ground there. And my talk is my title unsubtly suggests is I take the latter, obviously. Belief in God. So, why do I believe in God? Well, let's get a little more fundamental. Why do I believe in anything, really? Why is there anything at all to believe in? Why is there even a subjective consciousness like myself to believe in anything? Or to get as basic as you can, I like there was a philosopher in the 1600s, his name was Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz, and he was a contemporary of Newton, and he and Newton got in a big fight over who first invented the calculus. Can you imagine, you know, they both about invented calculus, <laughs> inventing it, I mean. But anyway, Leibniz asked a question that I think gets to the bottom line of everything. And here's about as basic, broad of a question as I think you could ask. Leibniz asked the question, why is there something instead of nothing? Okay? I mean, if you try to, try to get lower than that or broader than that, I, I don't know. I, I like that kind of stuff. You know, the bottom line. Why is there something instead of nothing? Because apparently there is something. You know, there is something here. And I think... You know, the answer must be found in one of those two overarching worldviews that we just talked about. One version or another of them, you know. Either the universe existed through natural or through supernatural origins. If the latter, if it came through the latter, through something supernatural, through God, creator God or gods or whatever, then the universe was made by a being or beings greater than it or prior to it. Because there's a basic law, only something greater than something could make it. Okay, only something greater than whatever. Think about that. Only something greater that could make it. So if the universe was made by something, it'd be pretty awesome, pretty powerful, greater than the universe to create it. Okay, now otherwise, if you don't accept that view, if you don't accept that view, creation had to have occurred naturally out of itself, which leads to the question, how did it first get there in order to create itself out of itself? You see what I'm saying? If it wasn't created by something, then something had to have already been there. And yet, where did that something come from if it wasn't created by something out of itself? How could it have created itself to begin with? If it created itself, it would have had to have been there in order to do it. Can you, 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 you see, it's, it's a little, the logic here gets a little 
Well, a little strange. How could something create itself? Something had to be prior to it. Now, the only apparent out of this, the only way to get out of this, other than a god, is the argument for an eternal universe, that the universe always existed. This is a belief that was held by Aristotle, and it was held by many people even into the 20th century. The idea that the, idea that the universe was always there, it always existed, never had a beginning. And uh, I think you, then you could get away from the idea of it needing any kind of creator if it existed for eternity. Now, this runs into some problems, and I just want to briefly touch on one. If you want to Google it and get into it deeper, I, I think there's something to this argument. I like it. It's an old medieval Muslim argument for the existence of God. It's called the Kalam Cosmological Argument, K-A-L-A-M. And I'm just going to touch on it briefly, but I try to wrap my mind around it. And, and if you want to find a really good modern Christian thinker, his name is William Lane Craig. And Craig has brilliant mind, brilliant Christian apologist, and he has sort of run with this. He's taken this old medieval argument and has kind of fleshed it out a little more. But the gist of this argument is, is simply that an infinitely old universe would be impossible because it would imply that an infinite number of moments would have had to have been passed in order to reach this moment or any moment. But how can you it's called the problem of transversing the infinite. How can you cross over an infinite number of anything? I mean, if the universe is infinitely old, then an infinite amount of time must have been transversed in order to get to the present moment where we are now. And how do you cover an infinite amount of time? You know, if an infinite universe existed in the... If, if the universe existed infinitely in the past then an infinite number of moments must have been traversed in order to get to where we are now. But if we can't count even in our heads to infinity, if we can't even count it even in our heads, how could in reality an infinite number of moments have been passed? Okay, as I said, I don't want to belabor it. Think about it. There's something to that argument that I, I like, whether it's, you know, how valid it is or not, I don't know. Of course, whether it was valid or not, it was, had all been mooted by the Big Bang Theory. And uh, I don't want to get a whole long thing now. I'll just say I don't have a problem with the Big Bang. It doesn't affect my Christianity. I have no problem reconciling. If you ask me, yeah, I could believe in the Big Bang. It's probably going to be turn. It's probably going to turn out wrong. Okay, I just know the way science is. You know, it, these theories that are in vogue, then eventually they throw them out. I don't have a problem with the Big Bang. And uh, if you ask me, yeah, I don't have a problem believing it. I can reconcile it, though it's probably going to turn out wrong. But for the moment, the main belief now is the Big Bang, which teaches that the universe, once not had a beginning, came into existence. That the universe once was in here and then came into existence. And, you know, I don't, again, there's an awful lot of math, an awful lot of science, an awful lot of physics in Big Bang cosmogony, okay? I, you know, the idea that, that gets rid of God, I, I've never been able to understand that. We'll look at that a little more. 
But fact, this idea that the universe had a beginning once convinced the world's most notorious atheist, Anthony Flew, that there must be a God. Now, it's funny about Anthony Flew. I think I might have mentioned him last year when I spoke here. I remember a number of years ago, I was reading a debate between theists and atheists over the existence of God. And I remember reading Anthony Flew arguing for the atheist position. And this guy was good. I mean, this guy was really, really good. I mean, he was brilliant. I was very impressed with his arguments. It didn't bother me because I don't think those things work one way or another. Either way, I didn't come to God through arguments. And in fact, I'm going to tell my last talk is my conversion story, which you'll see I came to God totally through an experience. There was nothing intellectual about my coming to know the Lord. The intellectual stuff came afterwards. But anyway, flu was brilliant. And I used to keep an eye out for him and read him when, you know, whenever I could because I liked good thinking. Well, anyway, flu for most of his life just accepted the universe as, quote, a brute fact. Okay, it was just for him, his own words, a brute fact. It just was. It didn't need an explanation. He didn't want to get behind the universe, you know, or to seek an explanation. He just accepted it as the ultimate starting point. You didn't go behind it. Now, that's really, if you think about it, that's not all. Is that banging? Is that bugging you as much as it's bugging me? Oh, I'm sorry, I don't, know. I don't know what the problem is with that. I'll just, it seems like when I come over here, maybe I'll just stand over here. Anyway, flu just accepted the universe as a brute fact. And if you think about it, that's really kind of silly. Because as, as one writer once said, the universe does seem like an awfully complicated, involved state of affairs not to have some explanation for it. You know, not to have something behind it. The universe just is without, you know, I mean, it's not all that rational to make that as your starting point. But Flew said he, quote, simply taken, quote, the universe and its fundamental features as the ultimate fact. Okay, and I really think that's kind of a cop-out. Because as I said, there's an awful lot out there just to not to have some kind of explanation for it. However... After the Big Bang, cosmogony came out, and apparently there's more and more evidence supporting it, though recently I've been reading things which are calling the whole thing into question, which again, as I said, if time should go on 25 years from now, that whole thing you know, might just be moot anyway. But according to it, it teaches the universe that once didn't exist, had a beginning, had a start. And this caused Flew to abandon his previous position. And uh, if the universe had a you know, beginning, then he said something must have started it. And he also found... Now, one of the arguments they used to try to get out of this, and recently, I don't know if you saw Stephen Hawking's new book. The, ah, I wish they could do something about that. Stephen Hawking's new book, The Grand Design. And they argue that... And, and Hawking argues that nothing created the universe, okay, that nothing created the universe. Let me read you a quote. This is from author Bill Bryson. He wrote a book called The Short History of Nearly Everything, because this is the thinking now. It seems impossible that you could get something from nothing, 
But the fact that there once was nothing, but now there is a universe is evident proof that you can. Okay? Okay? This is, but this is what they're arguing now. The only, they're saying that the universe was created out of nothing. If you read Hawking's new book, The Grand Design, they're trying to argue that nothing created the universe. But, you know, to a certain degree, that's logical. Because nothing doesn't need an explanation. See what I'm saying? Not anything else, anything you're going to get behind would need an explanation. But if you say that nothing created the universe, because that's where they're going. I mean, Hawking's, Miss Big Stephen Hawking's new book, The Grand Design, basically argues that nothing created the universe. They get into these things called quantum fluctuations or whatever, and uh, I wouldn't even be... But, to sit there and say nothing created the universe, you're moving beyond science. You're moving into metaphysics. You're moving into philosophy and speculation. You know, I mean, Flew just couldn't accept that. He couldn't accept that. I mean, when, and, and no wonder, when nothing, that which by definition does not exist, is posited instead of God as the creative force behind the cosmos, one has to wonder at the logic of those looking for something anything, even nothing, as opposed to God as the source of our existence. God, the foundation of all existence, is replaced by nothing, the negation of all existence, and that is what is positive as what has created the whole universe. You know, it makes me think of Tennyson's line, where it was, even though it was aimed at Christian believers, I think... This kind of thinking should point it in another direction. Believing where we cannot prove. You know, trying to argue that nothing created the universe. And yet, ultimately, if you don't want something, well, I guess if you don't want something, you got to have nothing. That's what they're arguing for. And again, somehow arguing that nothing created the universe, it's just not all that logical. Okay. Then there's the whole point of the argument from design and what we see in the world, the, uh, the teleological argument. Some people have argued, they said that way back in the 1700s, the English philosopher David Hume had destroyed the teolo- teleological argument, the argument from, de- from design. Now, if you ever read his book, I've read his book called Dialogues Concerning Natural Religions. And I got done with it. I had to scratch my head. This is considered the greatest polemic against the argument from design. And I want to read you where Hume was forced to go. What ultimately he was forced to concede. And remember, this was a book written in the 1700s. Okay, this was, you know, excuse the expression, the Pleistocene age. When When it comes to our understanding of the complexity of nature. But here's what, what was considered the greatest argument, the greatest classical book, or the greatest book written against argument from design. Here's what Hume was forced to concede. He had a dialogue going on between some people talking, one taking one view and one taking the other view, and that he had to admit, quote, you know, and he did talk about the amazing things that he saw in design, some of the fantastic things in nature. And then he had this, he said, quote, 
Matter may contain, now this is kind of funky, this old English, but listen to what he's saying. Matter may contain the source or spring of order originally within itself that the several elements from an internal unknown cause may fall into the most exquisite arrangement. So you see what he's saying here? He's saying, he's saying here, read it again. All right, let me read it again. Okay, matter may contain the source or spring of order originally within itself that the several elements from an internal unknown cause may fall into the most exquisite arrangement. So what he simply is doing is pushing the argument. He's saying there's something in matter itself. There's something inherent in matter itself which causes it to fall into this most exquisite arrangement. Okay, but see, all that does is push the argument back. Because I would humbly ask, where did matter get this information and ability to organize itself into this most exquisite arrangement? And again, I mean, this, here's a guy writing in the 1700s. Here's long before an electron microscope, long before he knew, people knew anything about a cell wall, more people knew anything about mitochondria, DNA, you know, on and on and on, even back then where it's infinitely, we know it's infinitely more complex, he was forced to resort to this argument, well, something in matter itself causes it to do that. And yet, I've often said, I, I think it'd be easier to imagine something inherent in paper and ink itself, having it somehow form Tolstoy's war and peace than, than something inherent in matter just in and of itself you know, you know, that to imagine carbon and water and proteins organizing themselves into a single cell, much less the processes that led to Albert Einstein's brain. Of course, science has purportedly given us the answer to how carbon, water, and proteins led to that brain. And that, of course, is random mutation and natural selection. And I don't really want to get into a whole debate here now about neo-Darwinism and so on. But I think in regard to the questions of God's existence, science has become a two-edged sword. And in my humble opinion, the sharpest edge cutting against atheistic evolution. Think about this for a minute. While, while the science about how or even if random mutation and natural selection could have created the complexity of life isn't debated, I mean, is contentiously debated, okay? How or if it could have is contentiously debated. What isn't debated, what nobody argues against, is the incredible complexity itself. I mean, nobody argues against that, okay? Well, they're arguing about how it got there, but nobody argues against the complexity. And there's certain irony here. There's a certain irony here that I don't want you to miss. The more complexity science finds in life, and I mean, it's just, it just never seems to end, particularly in, you know, in biology, the complexity, they just go deeper and deeper and they find more and more. It's just, you, you get on some of these websites and they show animations of the DNA and the RNA and, 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 and it just goes on and on and on. 
I mean, the more complexity science finds in life, the less likely the mean science claims for its origins becomes. Can you see the point there? It's the more complexity they're finding there, the less likely the, the whole idea of it happening by chance you know, becomes. In fact, at one point, quote, flu. By the way, if you, I mentioned this before. Flu wrote a book called There Is a God, How the World's Most Notorious Atheist Changed His Mind. And in it, Flew talks about how these, these things caused him to go. First, the Big Bang, believing the universe had one, always existed, then had a beginning. That was one thing. And then the other thing is the complexity in life. He quoted a Nobel Prize-winning physiologist in the book who said the following, We choose to believe the impossible, that life arose spontaneously by chance. Okay, and so, as again, Flu started to see this complexity, and he just rejected that. Now, some are not ready to concede the impossible, so they postulate the improbable instead. They admit, they say, okay, life is too complicated to have formed by chance in our universe. Okay, I mean, more and more they're being forced to admit that, given the estimated age of our universe. So some cosmologists, they've got a solution to this. They've come up with the answer. They have argued that ours just isn't one universe. There is many, many, there are many, many, many other universes out there. Maybe even an infinite number of universes out there, which means that the chances of one universe, ours, being what they call biophilic or friendly to life, suddenly greatly increases. Can you see the point? They look around, they, they, know, they think they know enough about the universe. Well, I think they obviously know enough about it now to know, all right, the odds of life forming by chance in our one universe are next to impossible. So what do they do? They then just postulate a whole bunch of other universes, an infinite number of universes, in order, and said, by chance, life occurred in one of them. I mean, who needs God when an infinite number of universes of which they really don't have any proof. It's pure speculation. Again, they're going to the area of philosophy and metaphysics, not science. Who needs one God, one God when an infinite number of universes will suffice? And even if I accepted, even if one accepted what they call the multiverse theory, that there's an infinite number of universes, well... It only pushes the argument back, as did Hume's argument. An infinite number of universes simply makes the question of their origin infinitely more pressing than does the existence of one. They find, I'll give you an infinite number of universes. Okay? Where did they come from? I mean, you know, where did they come from? I mean, if one universe alone kind of demands some kind of explanation unless you want to say nothing created it, unless you want to argue nothing created an infinite number of universes as well. I mean, again, that's most, that's, in many ways, that's the most logical way they could go because nothing doesn't need an explanation. Nothing, you know, for its origin. And, of course, an infiniternal God doesn't need an explanation either. A God that always existed or nothing. That seems to be the options. Anyway, but look at the extremes here. Look at the extremes that they're, they're going to. Either the universe, and, uh, either life, that, as we know it, 
arose from nothing, the negation of all existence, or it arose from an infinite number of universes. These are the two directions they're going in. It's kind of funny how they're going completely opposite. One arguing nothing, another you know, postulating an infinite number of universes. I don't know, wouldn't, wouldn't a supernatural creator be a more reasonable explanation? Certainly more reasonable than nothing. I guess an infinite number of universes. But again, an infinite number of universes doesn't get rid of the question of where did they come from. It only makes it infinitely more complicated than one universe. Now, the world's most famous atheist, probably Oxford zoologist Richard Dawkins, of course, he'll have none of it. I don't know if you ever read The God Delusion. I've read all these new atheists, most of their books, and you know, Dawkins is by far the, the most fun to read. And, and he really is funny. I mean, you, you get through the, you know, the book, the ultimate argument of his book is, you know, if you get right through his book, his ultimate attack is very, very weak in the end, however funny it is. And it is quite an amusing read. The rest of them, I, you know, I read Christopher Hitchens, who I happen to be a big fan of. His, you know, God is not great, and it wasn't very good. He happens to be a very good writer, because now it's funny. He's dying of um, esophageal cancer. I don't know if you've been following this, and a lot of people are wondering if he's going to, you know, suddenly have a conversion experience, because ultimately, I guess, when you face death, you realize if there isn't a God, we're really up the creek, <laughs> you know, that's it. So it, to some people, well, anyway, I'm not going to get into that. I'm deviating. But you get down, you read Dawkins' whole book, The God Delusion. His main argument comes down to one point. His main argument comes down to one point. Who created God? Okay, a designer God, he says, cannot be used to explain organized complexity because any God capable of designing anything would have to be complex enough to demand the same kind of explanation in his own right. Okay? But see, he's missing the point completely. But God, an eternal God by definition, doesn't have a creator. He is the creator, a caused universe. And all that's in it, in contrast, does need a creator. He's so confined by naturalism, Dawkins can't understand the qualitative difference between the maker and the made. And we are well, who created God? Well, if you're saying the sun needs a designer because it's complicated, well, how much more complicated would be the designer himself, God, and therefore something, you know, and he goes on and on, and who created God? But again, he's missing the point. He's missing the point. Besides, in the end, what was more likely to have been uncaused anyway? The universe or an infinite God? I mean, that's what you're boiling down to here. What ultimately would have been uncaused anyway? The universe or an infinite God? I don't know. answer seems pretty easy to me. Okay, then there's more. There's other arguments. You know, one of them... It's often called the moral argument for the existence of God. And, you know, a lot of these arguments for God's existence, they tend to work better after you believe than before. And I can see that, you know, in a minute, because a lot of times in the end, these don't get you to become a believer. They can help you step by step. But ultimately, you need to really have an experience with God to ultimately become. I, I think of this quote 
It was written by a guy in the 11th century, a church father, Credo Utentelegam. I believe in order that I may understand. And I love that quote because that caught my experience nine centuries later. I became a believer first. All this stuff in the end wouldn't have ultimately gotten me to believe. Now that I become a believer, I can see the logic and reason of it, but I'm going to touch on that a little bit when I get into my conversion story. But again, the other argument is just simply the whole question of morality. Let's take something hypothetical. Let's take something hypothetical. Let's say, let's say the Nazis won the war. Okay? And let's say under their propaganda, they convinced the whole world that the Nazi policy to, to murder anybody with one, if you had one Jewish grandparent, you were considered Jewish in Nazi ideology, and they would murder you. One Jewish grandparent, that's all it took. It was so funny, just as an aside, there were these, the Germans had recently allowed anybody from Russia, any Jew coming over from Russia, after the collapse of the communism, they would allow anybody Jewish to come over, they'd give them automatic citizenship. You know, they would let them become citizens if they were Jewish. But then what happened was a lot of people, you know, they wanted to, anybody they want to get out of Russia. I mean, who would rather, I mean, I would much rather live in Germany than Russia. And they said all these people coming that really weren't Jews. And, the, and so the rabbis in Germany were going to the Germans and saying, look, you've got to check these people out. You've got to check out and make sure they're really Jews. And the Germans said, uh-uh, we are never again going to try to determine who is or who is not a Jew. You know, but anyway, let's assume that they won the war and say they took over the whole world. And suppose they were able to convince every man, woman, and child, suppose they could convince the whole world that anybody with one quarter Jewish blood needed to be killed, would that be wrong. I mean, see, morality either comes from one or two places. Either it's something that we create, like cakewalk fusion jazz, or abstract expressionism, or it comes from above. It's transcendent. It's somewhat imposed upon us. Okay, morale, think about it. Where else either we created ourselves the way we create art or, or or I happen to be a fan of shakuhachi flute music. I love the Japanese flute music, but it's a human creation. So either it comes transcendent or it comes from us. Now, if every human being were convinced that anybody with one quarter Jewish blood needed to, man, woman, and child, infant, whatever, needed to be exterminated, how could it possibly be wrong? I mean, if, 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 if morality is purely human and everybody believed it, how could it possibly be wrong? Now, if you're not comfortable with that, which I assume most people aren't, then the, that, many people said, well, that means that morality must have come from something higher and greater than just humanity. And for many people, the only thing that makes sense is God. I mean, ultimately, how do amoral elements... If you break matter down, how do quarks 
quarks, which they say the protons and neutrons, quarks and ultimately all reality at this point now is quarks and electrons held together by some of these forces. How do these amoral forces in and of themselves ultimately, no matter how complicated, ultimately create moral beings, much less conscious beings or conscious beings with a morality? How ultimately, in many people, it just seems to be that it would have to come from somewhere above. It just doesn't seem conceivable that these things in and of themselves, and for many people, this is a powerful argument for the existence of God. And then you touch on another thing too. You know, a while back, you know, my wife knows I love to read and she knows the kind of books I read and so she's always going to these used bookstores and she brings home these books. And she brought me home a book called Confessions of a Philosopher. His name was Brian McGee. And it was his own intellectual autobiography. And in it, he talked about his own life, and he talked about the fact that he, by any standards, he had a great life. He had been a member of parliament. He was a music critic. He was a successful, you know, TV. He was on TV, radio. He said he, to quote him, he had exhilarating love affairs, you know, whatever, and on and on. And he said, by any standards, he said his life was going great. And then he said he was in his mid, I, I wish, I, I only, I don't, didn't quote him here. I've got it somewhere in my iPad, but I, I don't have time to go through it. But in this book, he describes, in fact, my latest, my next review column, if you happen to read my review column, I talk about this, I quote him extensively. He said he was in his mid-30s, and it suddenly hit him that he was going to die. And he suddenly realized, because he said, I, he said, I was very fortunate to grow up in a home that they had no religion. So he was totally no religion at all. And then he talked about the fact that he realized he was going to die. And then he wrote some of the most beautiful, eloquent stuff I'd ever read about, in the end, the utter meaninglessness of his life. That no matter what he did, he said, no matter what I accomplished, whether I became prime minister, whether I married, whether I was success, I was a failure, he went on and on and on. He said it all ultimately meant nothing. He said there, quote, there, I only got this quote here, there was no meaning in any of it, no point in any of it, and that in the end, everything was nothing. Because he realized one day he was going to die, and anybody who knew him was going to die. And science says eventually the universe is either going to you know, expand to the point where the light dies out and everything dead or it's all going to come back. The whole universe is going to crunch in on itself to the size of a fist. And on and on and on. In the end, there'd be no memory of him, no memory of anything he ever did. And on and on and on. It would be gone. And he ultimately realized the utter meaninglessness of it all. And the funny, the book was his intellectual biography. And he comes at the end of the book, and he tried through art and through, you know, philosophy and all this, and he came to the end of the book and he says, I am no closer now to an answer than I was before about life's meaning because of death, because of what death was going to do. And, you know, basically one time I spoke in front of a group of college students at a secular college. And then, you know, and in the end I said, you know, you better hope there is a God because if not, you are, you're you've got nothing. 
I used another phrase. I'm not going to use it here. I don't think I'd get away with it at GYC. <laughs> but, uh, you know, after I said, I said, whoop, did I really say that? But whatever. But the point was, in the end, you know, it's always ultimately meaningless. You know, if there is ultimately no God, and yet you look around, you see purpose. My fingers have a purpose. My ear has a purpose. The air has a purpose. The sun, all these things with all this purpose. You see purpose. You see design. You see this everywhere. And yet it all culminates and you add it all up into ultimate purposelessness. It just doesn't make sense. I love this line from the poet Auden. You know, I think he catches it so well. He says, nothing can save us that is possible. We who must die demand a miracle. And see, it's fascinating too. I'm not gonna, I think I did it last time I was here. The evidence for the resurrection of Jesus is so powerful. I plan one day to, I want to write a book one day just on all the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. It's been done. I just like to call all the stuff that's been pulled together. It's powerful. It's powerful, the historical evidence that you have for that. And anyway, he says, we who must die demand a miracle. And a miracle demands a deity, which leads back to Lewis's dilemma that I first talked about. As his atheist friend said, powerful evidence exists for the historicity of the gospel, particularly, particularly the resurrection of Jesus. And as I said, there's powerful, powerful evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. See, all you got to do is read the arguments that people bring up to try to get around from, to get around it. And they make about as much sense as some of these arguments that, you know, the universe was created out of nothing. But, you know, in the end, you know, you've got that. Then I'm slipping now, say, into the biblical stuff. I think last time I was here, I talked about Daniel 2 and the powerful evidence. Daniel 2 not only for the existence of God, but for God's foreknowledge. I mean, Daniel 2 is so powerful. They've been trying for 2,000 years to denude it of its power, and yet I think it's even more powerful now than it was back then. And uh, you've got a lot of evidence in the Scripture itself pointing for belief in God prophecy. Now, is any of this foolproof? Nothing is ever foolproof. You know, I don't worry about that. I probably read way too much philosophy to get too dogmatic about being able to absolutely prove anything. But, you know, it doesn't matter. You know, in fact, I have a sermon I give called Math Problem. And I talk about how in the 20th century, you know, it used to be people thought if you wanted absolute certainty, you go to mathematics. I mean, 2 plus 2 equals 4 in the number, you know, the base 10 number system. It doesn't matter what you ate for breakfast. It doesn't matter whether you're a Democrat or Republican. You know, I mean, two, I mean, you got absolute certainty in math. Well, by the time you got halfway through the 20th century, that had been completely kicked out. Completely kicked out. I mean, one of the famous philosophers of the 20th century, Bertrand Russell, just basically said, I tried for 20 years to put mathematics on a logical foundation, and I can't do it. And I think now, as in the 21st century, I think they've pretty much given up even trying to put math on a logical foundation. So if ultimately math is something that you have to ultimately take on faith, how much more are you going to be the existence of God? And here's something to think about, too. I'm deviating from my notes here, but 
I tend to do that a lot. It's funny, I met some kid yesterday. Man, he's getting a PhD in Har- from Harvard in neuro- neurophysiology. Oh, and I left to go to Harvard and study, get a PhD. I wouldn't stu- get it in that. But uh, I, I, love, I get it, you know, yeah, neurophysiology. It was, well, not, I could deviate. But anyway, if, if you ask somebody in science about why they reach a point where they can't answer something, and ultimately, in whatever you believe, you get to a point where justification stops, where you have to basically take it on faith. Okay? Anything. I said, even in mathematics, that was my point with all that, even in mathematics. And if you say something in science, well, I got to take it on faith, it's considered a failure. Okay? You can say, well, you got to take it on faith. That's not what science is all about. But ultimately, in anything you believe, secular or whatever, you got to take it on faith. Because at some point, you reach a point where you got to take it on faith. And yet, in all these other things, it's considered, well, that's kind of a failure. But isn't it interesting that in the Bible, in Bible religion, faith is kind of put in, you know the word a priori? It's put in beforehand. It's just accepted as if God knew beforehand as fallen human beings. There's going to be limits to whatever we could know. And ultimately, even something like math to a certain degree is going to be taken on faith. So how much more something like the existence of God? And so God puts faith, he builds it in to the religion itself. It becomes primal and, and basic to it. So instead of being considered, well, I've got to take it on faith as a failure, it's fundamental to the whole belief system. And I think that's an important point because ultimately in the end, no matter what we believe, ultimately we take it on faith. But I just read a book the other day, actually my uncle had written it, And uh, in the end, somebody says, do we ever really know anything? And ultimately, and the whole point is ultimately we got to take things on faith. The good news for us as Adventists, as Christians, is it's not a blind faith. It's not a blind faith. As I said, I believe the arguments for the existence of God far outweigh arguments against. I mean, look what they were forced to resort to. Nothing created the universe or an infinite number of universes. You know, life, or nothing created life or an infinite number of universes did. And even the infinite number of universes doesn't get rid of the need for an explanation for the infinite number of universes. So really, you come down to two options. You come down, I think, to two options. I think the two most logical options. Nothing. Because nothing doesn't need an explanation. I guess you maybe somebody could argue, maybe nothing does. Why is there nothing? Instead of why is there something instead of nothing, you could argue why, is there, why would there be nothing instead of something. But again, that's getting... But the bottom line is, they say either nothing created the, either nothing created the universe, because that doesn't need an explanation, or an infinite, eternal God created life. An infinite, eternal God. So, I don't know which one seems more logical to you. I mean, am I being unfair? Am I being overtly prejudicial in thinking that a creator God is more logical 
than nothing? I don't think so. I think it makes more sense. So in the end, why do I believe in God? First, as I said, God is the best explanation for the existence of the universe. The argument that nothing created it, well, there's some very people a lot smarter than I am are taking that track or going down that track. But I think logically they had no other choice if they wanted to get away from God. Second, a creator, God, an intelligent designer just seems to me the most logical explanation for the design. In fact, very quick, you know, all, you all know the name Francis Crick. Crick and Watson DNA. Okay, they were the guys that, in fact, you go by, I, would, I had a chance. To me, it was almost like being in Mecca. I was in Cambridge University in, in England a couple years ago, and I just saw these. This is, that was Isaac Newton's office, and here's where Ludwig Wittgenstein used to work, and, you know, the, the, the lab where they first discovered the atom, you know. I mean, these, play, these things that in intellectual history are incredible. And they walked by, there was a bar, and there was a sign outside the bar, and they said it was in this bar where Crick and Watson finally first came up with their DNA helix, the double helix DNA. But the bottom line, Crick, one of the most influential, famous scientists of the 20th century, adamant atheist, hard-nosed atheist, but he realized the impossibility of life forming by chance. He just said, uh-uh, it couldn't have happened. So Crick, and it's funny, it was a hilarious article you would read, because it was written by a secular, secular writer, obviously. He was, Crick believed in what they call the panspermia theory. It was the idea that life began in another part of the universe and was brought to the earth. And Crick believes that space aliens came to the earth and seeded life on earth, and that's how life began. And again, again, it was so funny because this, this article, and it was, I think it was Atlantic Monthly, you could tell the frustration of the author. He says, so the 20th century's greatest scientist one of them, believes that aliens came in spaceships and created life on Earth. And yet that, of course, even if you accepted that, fine, you want to accept that. But what's the problem with that? Where do the aliens come from? Okay, so again, so again... To me, it seems so much simpler, a creator God. So you got the cosmological argument, the teleological argument, and then you get the argument again for morality. It's just awfully hard to see how moral, how we could be moral beings. And again, if every human being believes something, say, as I said, the murder of anybody with one quarter Jewish blood is moral, is right, because everybody believes it's right, how could it be wrong? And if you've got a problem with that, it seems like the only logical explanation is something transcending that. And then if there is no God, ultimately our lives are meaningless. And while that's certainly a logical possibility in the sense that nothing logically demands that our lives have meaning, there just seems to be too much purpose, too much meaning all around us and everywhere purpose for us as humans to ultimately end and purposelessness. And again, Brian McGee, Confessions of a Philosopher. If you could find that book, you read, you know, I'm paid to say this stuff, basically, okay? But you read this guy, most eloquent description I've ever read of what death does to denude life of all meaning and all purpose without a God. You can read in Brian McGee's 
Brian McGee's writings. And then you got the Bible and the prophecies in the Bible that in so many ways seem to me could only be explained through an omniscient God. Okay, anyway, these are some of the reasons why I believe in God. And I contend that belief in God is the most logical and rational explanation for the reality we find ourselves in. Is it absolutely foolproof? Well, again, I, I'm sorry, there's nothing that's foolproof. There's not, nothing is fool, foolproof. I just, again, I read an, a lot of philosophy. And it can, if you're not careful, totally screw your brain up. There's some some things already has. But in the end, in the end, there's a certain amount of contingency in everything we believe. And I like this text, of course, but without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. He who comes to God must believe that he is. And as I've just tried to show here, we have good reasons, logical reasons, for indeed believing that he is. In fact, I believe the reasons and the logic for belief in God work so much better. We're on much solid, logical grounds than for belief that no God exists. Okay, well, I got one minute left. 10.15, this is supposed to stop. All right, anybody quick? Anybody got a quick question on anything at all? Yeah, I'm going to tell my conversion it's the last talk. My next talk, Ivan's Children, I'm going to deal with, okay, you got all these good arguments, I think good arguments for the existence of God, but they run into one big problem that none of them answer. None of them answer. In fact, they make it more difficult and that is the question of evil. Okay? You could take all these arguments, and that's fine, and I think they work, but they don't answer the question of evil. And for many people, that's the biggest problem. And that's what my next talk, Ivan's Children, is going to attempt to deal with, is the question. Because that's fine. Okay, you got God exists. Then I read the other day where someone said, I'd rather believe there wasn't a God than believe that, you know, there was a God who has allowed what we experience here to happen. Anyway, well, let's pray. This is, time is up. Anyway. Lord, we come to you and realizing that we do need to live by faith. And again, I thank you that faith isn't blind. I thank you for all the reasons that we have. Ultimately, though, Lord, there are always going to be questions. There are always going to be things we don't fully understand. But I'm thankful for all the evidence that you have given us. And I pray that each of us will take the reasons we have for faith. And we will cultivate them. And we will nurture faith. And we will think faith. And we will talk faith. And, and we will just live, most importantly, live out our faith. Because truly, by living it, do we experience you deeper. Again, I thank you for all the reasons that we have for, for believing. And help us with our doubts. They're natural. We all have them. We all struggle with them at times. And, but doubt can be the thing which pushes us to dig deeper and further and to seek you with all our hearts. And you promise, and you shall seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. In the name of Jesus, I pray.
This message was produced by GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. GYC seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians in contemporary contexts. To download or purchase other resources like this, or if you have been blessed by GYC and would like to donate, visit gycweb.org or email info at gycweb.org. You could also reach us via mail at P.O. Box 3786, Ann Arbor, Michigan, 48106. This recording is licensed under Creative Commons. This means you can copy and share it with anyone you like. Please attribute this recording to GYC wherever you reuse it. And keep in mind that resale and alteration are strictly prohibited.